0: This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode number 81. Oh, yeah. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing
1: Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a
0: special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. There's more than one way to achieve financial freedom with real estate. I talk a lot about how to be the syndicator, how to find a deal, put the team together, raise the money and do the deals. There's also another equally good way to permanently replace your income and quit your job or do whatever you want. And that is by deploying your money and make it work for you. So if you're a high net worth individual or have money to invest in real estate, this episode is for you. And if you're a syndicator, then pay attention, right? Because you're going to learn a lot about what high net worth individuals are looking for. And I have with me on the show today, Tim and Tom Black. Tim is an MD and Tom is a former CEO of a large entertainment company. Tom wrote the book that's currently on Amazon called The Passive Income Physician. And it's all about helping high net worth individuals make better decisions with their money, increased their returns and decreased their tax spend. He has a really incredible journey all the way from being a former US Navy vet, and emergency medicine physician. And then he realizes that his passion was for real estate and that he could no longer afford to work the 80 hours that he was in medicine as much as he loved it. He was just missing his family too much. So he started looking into real estate and then he teamed up with his brother, Tim, and together they were able to put a thousand plus units under management in less than two years and starting. Fantastic story. So today we're going to talk about the view on multifamily from a more passive investor standpoint. What are the risks? What are the returns looks like? What should a passive investor look for in a multifamily investment? How to select the right syndicator? What skills to develop and why multifamily is better than really any other investment out there if you put together the returns, the risk profile and the tax benefits. So hope you enjoy the show. Let's get right into it. Hey, Tim and Tom, welcome to the show today. How are you? Very good, Michael. How are you doing today? Very good. We're good. Glad to be here. Appreciate it. Oh, fantastic. I'm glad you guys are both here. Really en- enjoyed your book. And we're going to talk a lot about that today because it's geared towards physicians, really, on how to be a good passive investor. But my gosh, you know the principles, it doesn't matter if you're an attorney or a business owner or other high net worth individual it's totally relevant. And so I want to kind of dig into that. And before we get started, I'd like to hear a little bit more of your story. In particular, let's start with, I think, Tom, you're the one who initiated all this real estate nonsense, right? What prompted you to even start looking elsewhere from what you were doing at the time, which was what? Like What was happening around this time leading up to that time that prompted you to look around and look at real estate?
1: It's funny. It kind of goes back a number of years. Uh, I was never a very good high school student, barely graduated, couldn't have got into a vocational school for the, how good my SATs were, how lack of good, and I've joined the military and really that's where I started blossoming, realizing that there was much more to life and that I could do things outside of what normal people, I guess what you're coached to do. And luckily got out of the military and decided because of a couple of things that had happened that I was just gonna somehow miraculously become a doctor. So set my mind to it. You know, got out of the military after four tours overseas. I guess went to undergrad, then went to med school. Did very well in med school. Put my mind to it. I graduated the top of my class. Then I go to post grad and residency. And right about that time, we had we was about 2006. I guess we bought our house top of the market. Left residency in Indianapolis about 2009, and realized that I couldn't sell my house. There's no way for as much I paid for it. So. I got the bright idea to rent my house to an incoming resident for three years. So she signed a three-year contract. I think, you know, hey, great. This will at least, at least I'll have a little bit of money in my pocket and, and we can, that will absolve that problem for now and I can kick the can down the road for three years. So I did that and absolutely became enamored with reading about cash flow and reading about real estate and doing some more investigation courses, starting to look online. Even at one point, I almost got my real estate license. And at this time, I was in a, just an uber-busy clinical practice as an emergency doctor in, in, in a very high-volume trauma center, and I was just getting my rear kicked, and I wasn't seeing my kids. I was making good money, but I was sacrificing my time for money, which it just seemed to me so unbelievably backwards that the thought process that you're going to be this well-off physician, it's going to be a great life. I started looking at myself going, wow, did I have it wrong all these years? Did I really focus on what was at the core of who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do? I love serving people. I love medicine, but it just became very perverse for me. Mm -hmm. And so I then bought some land out in East Texas when I was out there and started doing a development. I had no idea. Just thought it'd be a great idea because we had bought some homes in Houston, some foreclosures, all of them probably underwater at this point in time, but literally. <laughs> I did well. I did well. And and after I did that, it was it was a great lesson of going through the underwriting, the business plan, development, working with the city. And I just got smitten with it and actually resigned from my practice a number of years ago and said, We're moving to the old big city and we're gonna, we're gonna make this work. You know, I took another job as a physician, but I've just loved it ever since. So it's totally changed my life.
0: So you got started with single family house rentals, and you thought, this is actually really cool. And then you also figured that this might eventually be a way out. At what point did you come to that realization?
1: Yeah, I started buying a lot of foreclosures, you know, HUD foreclosures and things during that downturn period. And what I discovered is it, it was a lot of work. It was still very fierce in competition, REOs and things like that, that... I kind of decided, you know, know, for as much work as I'm putting on, we had bought maybe five or six houses that it just seemed excessive and there had to be a better way. I had people at that time that were watching what I was doing. I, you know, I had some investors that were interested doing that. I just didn't know those pieces of the puzzle. How do I take this to the next level? Because I understand it. I love it. And what can I do to kind of you know, get that economies of scale and thinking at the time, like, oh my God, multifamily, that is just so out of my range because it seems so daunting. When in fact, it probably, arguably now looking back, it's probably easier than doing the one-off running a home and either being a the manager and or operations company, which is going to completely eat into your cash flow. So I think it was just a culmination of that. And when I started doing the development, you know, it was only 18, 20 units. So it was just much easier. There was so much more buffer in the budgets that you could do many other things. And I didn't even know about forced appreciation at that time. Here I am still thinking, you know, doing things on the comps and everything like that. So it wasn't the same until that, that next world opened up. And then it just, you know, then it just got really fun.
0: Well, you got into coming commercial real estate by developing an apartment building. So you're doing some single family hand rentals. Why did you start getting into commercial real estate? What was your reasoning behind that? Why not just keep buying rentals?
1: there was a point that there's only specific markets around that area that you can do really well cash flowing them and if you're going to go buy you know you got to hit that one percent rule right around the area that i lived in wasn't available to do that and i was having to travel and when i saw vacant land i just decided to say hey you know what we could build duplexes we could do a lot of things that i could make myself you know the master of that destiny and i can decide what to do it how i could do that and how i could manipulate maybe the the builder's fees into the loan and things like that so that I can manage to do better on them and have a better product on the outside. So it really was birthed from that. It just got to be that single family homes can can be really hard. I mean, they're difficult to find the one and just the competition is no different than multifamily.
0: When you got into commercial, was that your first step towards like trying to quit your job or was it still at that point something you just want to do on the side? I mean, what was your goal at the time?
1: I think my goal was to ultimately get down the road where I'd be able to, when we talk about security versus freedom, I want freedom. I mean, everybody talks about getting a secure job. I could care less. Freedom to me is, is waking up in the morning. And if I want to go into work, I certainly can because I enjoy it. Or because I want to go up to see Tim and we're going to go fly to Charlotte, North Carolina or something. That's not work to me. That was the point that I knew at some point that the medical community, it's just not sustainable. I've seen way too many physicians you know, in their 50s, 60s. I run a group here in Dallas area of some guys that are still in their 70s and they're not working because they want to. It's usually I find it's either a fear that they don't know they're scared to retire or they can't. And that's a sad thing to think, wow, you know, you can't retire when you're 70 after a very, you know, 50 or 30, 40 years of practicing medicine and in insane hours. Insane. It's not where I want to be at all. So I knew it wasn't sustainable and I had to change.
0: So you got into this commercial property and then bought a 21 unit in Fort Worth. Is that right? That was kind of the first pre-existing deal that you bought. Tell us a little bit about that one. That was actually the second. The second. Now tell us what the first then.
1: Yeah. So the first one, um, I'd successfully done this apartment. We had a 1031 to our development into some commercial assets, which is just some, some light industrial triple net lease buildings. Then I was doing pretty well. And uh, moved to the Dallas area and took a, a medical directorship of, of a couple of hospitals and found myself having more time. And so I really started doing, reaching out to, I didn't even know what a syndicator was at the time, reaching out to some people in the area, you know, going to lectures and getting a feel for what it meant. I was fortunate to have stumbled on to a, to a deal that was kind of an off-market deal of a 305 unit community in, uh, in Arlington. Luckily, two years ago, I took that down probably the first and the best thing that I'll ever do is, you know, one of those things, you know, you'd better be, rather be lucky than right sometimes, but that was the first one and it's done exceedingly
0: well. Yeah. I mean, when I got into restaurants, for example, my thought was, I'm going to build a new restaurant. I never even thought about, you know, buying something right now. You said, oh, I'm going to build something. Clearly the returns can be higher, but the risk is enormous, right? So why did you like that, you know, first, second deal, that 305, what did you like about that versus maybe some developing something and how important was that first deal to what happened after that?
2: Sure.
1: Yeah, it was, you know, it's a totally separate thing. I knew once I finished developing that, even though I had a, I had a blast doing it. It took about 10 years off my life, to be honest with you. (laughs) It, It was rough. I, you know, I can still remember going out after work, getting off at two in the morning from the ER, driving back through the complex, you know We're framed and we're doing this and sitting there going, oh my God, I cannot believe I'm doing this. A transformer would get knocked up by lightning and that I didn't have any power at the place and people are mad and you're just thinking, why did I do this? But it was a completely different animal. I knew I didn't want to do any developments again. I think in a small town, you have some advantages there. But when you get outside that, there is just so many working parts to developing. And I wanted something that was stabilized, that you could really look and have a mathematical formula for success. And the risk was so much more mitigated to me, even though people think, Oh my God, you know, $12.8 million is our sale price, how could you ever, you know, go into that next step? But to me, it wasn't risk. It it was completely logical based on what I could tell. And there was evidence behind that. And as a physician, you know, we talk about evidence-based medicine and things like that. I had a reason and I had steps that I could go prove why this was going to be a success.
0: Now, assuming you are a physician, the people always assume you're loaded and have all this money going after such a large deal, you know, even as a physician, I got to believe that there is a certain limit to one's personal resources. So when did you get a taste for raising other people's money?
1: Very quickly, right around that time frame. You know, it's funny when people and I had been doing this and this was probably nine, well, eight years after I really started in real estate doing things. So I had developed a good amount of trust, but it was those people that were with me from a very long standpoint. You're right. You bring up a really good point that everybody thinks as a doctor. Yes. You know, you're loaded. You're a rich doctor, which can't be any farther from the truth with with healthcare and how things are and with the tax burdens. Rich doctors aren't the ones that live in the gigantic gated neighborhoods nowadays. We're very suburban folk. (laughs) It's almost a very weird flip-flop to physicians sometimes when I went into this thinking that nobody's going to trust me, I'm a doctor, but everybody else around me would think, oh, you're a doctor, you have to be smart, which, you know, those two things are not, you know, definitely mutually exclusive. So it just had to be shown through progress. I had to actually show why at several meetings and I would actually explain the business plan and why that was so there was a lot of grinding. It wasn't simple at all. I mean, it was it was a stressful event. And, and you had to prove and you had to perform. And that was the greatest thing about it is, I like being held, you know, in my feet to the fire. When I say I'm going to do something, I have to, you know, go out there and prove it. So that's yeah. been-
0: and at what point did you actually were you able to quit your job? What had transpired? And at what point were you able to do that?
1: Well, I could, you know, I still keep my foot in the door just because I still like it. I mean, it's not something I could wake up right now and decide not to go in, but I'm, I'm the master of my own domain. And, and that's one of the biggest pieces of advice I give people and they're wanting to hurry up and, and quit their job. And I say, you know what, don't be in a hurry unless you're in a really bad situation. You know, don't quit your J job until you're dang confident that you know that you've got cash flow to ride that out because, you know, there's nothing better to having that ability and, and to get to walk away if you want to. You know, there's a lot of power in going to work, whether that's you know, I work about one day a week. That's enough for me, And if, if it was more than that, then it would be a little bit you know, not as palatable, and I'd probably say, "Hey, eh, I think I'm going to leave this." Tim, Tim often jokes, because I get real cranky about 24 hours before I go to the hospital. <laughs> so, that's right. So he usually knows. And so that time is coming. I'm just enjoying what I'm doing right now, though.
0: That's fantastic. Tim, uh, you're on the call. You guys are brothers. You guys work together. Just talk a little about yourself and how you started getting involved in what Tom was doing.
2: Yeah, sure. So our paths are very, very different. I'm nine years elder to Tom. You know, when you think about our life, what's interesting is that, you know, by the time he was getting to be a young man, nine, 10 years old, I left the house. So we literally have spent more time together the last year and a half than we have the previous, you know, 40 years of our life, which has been really interesting for both of us. So my career path was very different. I like Tom I was not a good high school student i'm sure my parents you know were ripping their hair out and you know i loved to work that's what i wanted to do i didn't particularly play sports i worked and i excelled at it and i excelled at leadership when i was working so that kind of uh, drove me to a 32 year career in hospitality and entertainment in march of 2016 i retired as the chief operating officer Of a large hospitality company in North America. I just have been in a, you know, very, very fortunate and blessed to have been in a situation where we sold the company a few times while I was there to private equity, which, you know, gave me a few dollars to put away. And I decided to walk away and think a little bit about my life and what was important to me. So took about six or seven months off. And, you know, during that time, Tom was banging on me to, uh, you know, you need to look at this real estate thing, dude. You know, you've been working for a paycheck. And you know, now it's time to have your money work for you, which is really very, very important. So I did a lot of soul searching, and we decided to start the firm. And, and I think what's unique is that, you know, Tom brings, you know, a wealth of knowledge, tax code, and real estate developments, and I bring a lot of knowledge in terms of operation structure, strategy, planning, and building blocks. It's been very unique. You know, we've grown the firm very responsibly, but very rapidly. You know, one of our, our really important pillars of our foundation is education, not only to educate ourselves, which we do constantly, but to educate our investors. So we spend a lot of time educating our investors on real estate, how to create passive income streams, how to take advantage of the tax code and depreciation.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things I liked about your book, The Passive Income Physician, is that it really seeks to educate the passive investor. You know, obviously based on Tom, your background, it was it was targeted at the physician. But like I said, anyone reading this book interested in passive investing in multifamily is a fantastic read. And so I wanna kind of go through some of the the tips that you have in there. First of all, as a passive investor, we have two issues as high net worth individuals is, you know, how do we get better yield on our on our money and how do we reduce our taxes? And we're always looking for the best ways to do that. Now, you have obviously honed in on multifamily. Can you talk a little bit about why you advise passive investors to consider multifamily over anything else?
1: Yeah, well, I think for me, it, it was... A couple of you know approaches, and when we talk about real estate in general, more than other other types of passive income, you know, because you've got stable cash flow, you have the appreciation aspect, you have depreciation, and then of course amortization of all, all four of those things. So you have four phases of money that are really working for you. Specific with multifamily, the reason I like it is because I don't see in the time I've been doing this, and when I look back from where we're we going as a country, and you look at pop culture and how banking industry has changed over the last 50 years in the legislation we've had, you just don't see, you know, there is no affordable housing anymore, it seems like. I mean, you in Virginia, I can't even imagine what the median house price is for someone else's starter home. It's just not possible anymore. And then when you look at the culture of millennials, you look at the baby boomers and how everybody's downsizing, there's just this large push and tendency to doing things a little bit different from where we've been. I don't think that's going to run out. I think that what we see is... You know with multifamily everybody's always going to need a place to live right that's why I was really attracted to it when you talk about everything more I and mean, I would say the contrarian would say, well, everything's got an ebb and a flow there's always cycles, and I completely agree with that but with multifamily versus a lot of other things, I think that ebb and flow is more based on interest rates and cap rates probably than the actual need for housing. you know we're not going to have this glut of B and C class places on the market. I mean, we're not, making, we're not making any more B and C class places, you know? And so there's this effect that it just versus stocks, bonds, mutual funds, gold, it was just extremely stable to me. And it was very tangible. There's something about to me, to an investor, to have an address and have something physically that you can go out, touch and actually see that, that it's working to you. It's not, it's not a fiat investment, I guess, is kind of the, the way I look at it.
0: Right. As an investor, my experience has been that, you know, you can advertise certain high returns, but the investor is really foremost concerned about the downside, the risk. How do you assess the risk profile of multifamily?
1: Well, you know, I think number one, it depends on the syndicator and the underwriter. I think with us, we're very, very, very risk averse. And the way we underwrite for things regardless of the market, we tend to just look at 2% raises year over year. So 2% cost I mean, cost of living actually goes up more than that. So if we can't factor in where our minimal returns are going to be at a 2% increase and a very large economic vacancy, about 15%, then we don't offer on the deal. You know, there may be a really large upside that where we know we can push rent 6 7%. It's probably realistic. But to underwrite that, even in a really hot market, is risky to me. We don't typically offer huge returns if we know the property is going to say, it's going to go gangbusters. and We can predict a 15% cash on cash. We still don't go in there saying, hey, guys, you're going to get 15% cash on cash. We'll say, you know, 9%. That's what our, that's what our thoughts are going to be. That's what's going to be where we would say our target's going to be. And don't solicit that. It's just when they start getting the checks. And obviously, everybody's is pro rata and everybody's still entitled to all that appreciation we do. But we certainly don't like to advertise that because I think that's a little bit of false and misleading information about it.
0: Yeah. So certainly being conservative with your underwriting and, you know, not over promising anything. You know, I also like the way that multifamily performed during the last recession. I mean, the default rate from multifamily was, was extremely low compared to residential. That's kind of what I, what I like about that as well. Now, what you talked about on the return side, if, you know, I'm looking for any kind of yield, what kind of returns can passive investors expect from a multifamily investment?
1: Sure. Well, let me go back real quick because you made a really good point with that. So we found some data because it was, a, it was really poignant in what you just said And during the recession. So you're talking about one of the greatest recessions and led by, led by real estate. That Fannie Mae, all Fannie Mae underwriting, the default rate was less than 1%. 2004, 10 to 2009, it was some ungodly low default rate, which if that's the worst we've got, that's, that's pretty incredible. I would say for your average family uh, or for multifamily and what we do, we try to strive for this, you know, 9 to 9% to nine cash on cash to 90 to 100% return in five years. I think people use five years just because it's a nice round, not round number. It's just a nice time period. You know, two is too early. 10 is probably too long to think a decade. It's just how that underwriting seems to work. We've always, always exceeded our projections, but I would never want to, like I said, before solicit that, but... We've done just like on this other property that we've got that we're actually selling that my first 305 unit, our returns are going to be some like 130% in 24 months. Those aren't indicative of, you know, that's not every single deal. So you have to, you have to kind of minimize what <laughs> Tim's laughing at me. Remember that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. You're benefiting from a heated up market right now, which is fantastic. So it's a good, good place to be. Now, as a passive investor, what kind of skills should I develop? to become better and to try to recognize good investments.
1: Become really good at reading a P&L, reading a balance sheet, a little knowledge of underwriting and what what the actuals per door, things like that that you can kind of know in your head, you know, roughly, you know, for insurance numbers, how much is this going to cost? How much is this going to cost? You know, things like that, because it's it's fairly easy and it becomes mundane, as you know, when you underwrite these things, you can usually in a couple of minutes tell whether a deal is a good deal or a bad deal. It becomes more about the submarket and knowing where the property's been and what you can do and you know, what management that you're going to have. I think that's more what the trick is because objectively, you could look at things a million different ways.
0: Right. So, you talked about learning how to raise a P&L, uh, learning how to do some light underwriting, meaning how to analyze a property, knowing what things cost, for example, knowing rent rates, getting more familiar with that. Uh, anything else you can think of that a past investor should develop some kind of skills?
2: Jim? Speak up. (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously, there's a ton of resources out there, right? I mean, in terms of books that are available for people to understand, you know, I would echo what Tom said. I would, you know, certainly understand rent roll, especially in multifamily space and what the rent roll is and what it means. Yeah, I, I don't know of any other specifics other than diving in and finding a mentor. I mean, I think that's probably the biggest thing is finding a mentor that you can learn from.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, finding a mentor. So what's your advice to a past investor about choosing the right syndicator, right? I mean, obviously, looking at the deal is is one thing on paper. How important is the team that's behind there and what should someone look for there?
1: Huge. I'd say huge. I think that's the number one thing you should look for. I think trust has definitely got to be there and integrity. And I think the biggest thing over, even if you don't, it'd be hard to trust somebody you don't know, but communication to me communication is the absolute pillar of who we are if somebody's not returning your email or not returning a call on time or if you get that bad sense of why you know if you've invested with them before and maybe there's not there's unanswered questions there should be nothing a syndicator can't get you or a question that he can't answer in a really timely fashion if you're waiting a week for an email I just tend to, I've seen too many people that try and jump into this and don't Don't look at it like as a true business. They're just doing these things on the side and it may or may not be a good deal. I think it's really easy to to take your eye off the ball and to get raptured in your own life and realize that somebody is, you know, investing in this project and they're not investing in the project. They're investing in you as the syndicator.
2: And that's
0: super important. That's super funny. Tim, any other thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think Tom hit the big ones. Transparency is ultimately the most important thing. We probably have a tendency to over-communicate, to be honest with you, but you know, we come from a servant leadership perspective and that's what we do for our investors. And therefore, you know, communication is uber, uber critical.
0: Yeah. What do you mean by transparency? What does that look
2: like? pop the hood open. So if anybody wants to see the financials of any of our deals, if they want to see general ledgers, balance sheets, we're more than welcome to share that information. As an investor, they're absolutely entitled to that. So we share anything. We invest right alongside with all of our investors as well with our own cash, which you know ultimately is very, very important as well.
0: Yeah, that's right. Any thoughts you guys have where the passive investor can try to reduce their risk in the investment? Obviously, one of the main concerns of a passive investor is a lack of control once they invest. So the perceived risk in their mind is is a bit high. Anything to kind of address that concern about lack of control and, and the risk there?
1: No, I think that just goes back to knowing who your who your investments are with. You know, what's their track record, what's their background, what's their pedigree. I think that's that's how you control risk, right? That's the number one thing. Unless you're going to go out there and do it, you know, or do a development on your own where you're you're carrying the entire burden, I just don't know of any other way other than you know underwriting yourselves and understanding. Tim, I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts because you've done a couple of, I've done
2: several passive investments myself, and I know you have too. With some make, yeah. I mean, I, I think. Listen, I think there's more risk in the stock market than I think there is passive investing in real estate. So. You know, back to Tom's point, I mean, I think you're investing in an individual or individuals. The ability to talk to the syndicators, I think, is critically important, not only for education and learning as a passive investor, but for transparency as well. So, you know, I think Tom hit it.
0: So we talked about kind of the attractive risk profile of multifamily. Then we talked about the, the attractive returns that are clearly there. One thing that's not known by a lot of past investors or, or misunderstood is the, is the tax benefits of multifamily or real estate in general. And they're staggering, right? Especially when you're comparing, you know, 8% return in the stock market versus, for example, 8% return on a real estate investment. You know, they're not actually created equal, right? You have these massive tax benefits on the real estate side. And most people don't know about that. They're like, oh, I'm already getting an 8% return on the stock market. Why the heck would I, you know, invest with you? Can you talk about that? Because you, you do a really nice job illustrating that in your book.
1: Right. Yeah, I would say that's one of the biggest reasons I started when I rented my house out there, thinking, "How do I?" When I was coming out of residency, knowing that someday that I'd be making a, you know a decent paycheck, how do I mitigate that? And that's where I started realizing reading tax code, things like that. Uh, I incentivized my wife to go get a real estate license so that we. <laughs> <of you, yeah. laughs> those of you don't don't know, working in, in joint with your spouse, you know, enables you to take as long as she's actively investing, it allows us to take a larger chunk of the passive depreciation. And, you know, the two phases that you learn, you know, when you look at a mutual fund or a stock, yes, you might be making 8% is what's advertised minus the 1% that the broker takes. And then the capital gains tax on the, you know, difference of your investment, you're probably making, you know, six, maybe five some something percent. The difference with that in, in real estate is you've got a depreciation of the offset of the, uh, the property. So for example, if you buy a million dollar property, usually it's divided up into 80-20 rule to where 20% of that cost is allocated towards land and land can't be depreciated because it's fixed. So the other 80% of that property can be either you know rapidly depreciated over five or seven year schedule or regularly over 27 year schedule. So that $800,000 now becomes the ability to take off you know, forty thousand dollars every year for five years, or I'm sorry, not what's that, <laughs> fifteen years. It can completely negate your cash flow on there, and in, a, in essence reduce. Theoretically, you could reduce your income to zero. I mean, you really could.
0: And that's the bottom line I think the listener I want you to remember is, is that the income you're getting from a passive real estate investment, your taxes on that income are either substantially less than a W-2 earned income or, or there's none at all, especially if you do a cost segregation analysis where you basically allow you to depreciate the building over a much – or the majority over a much shorter time period. And so the bottom line is, you know, in a stock market, when you have an 8% return, well, you're getting taxed, you know, capital gains tax on on that. But with income from real estate, your taxes are either substantially lower or or actually non-existent. Very important for people, I think, to know that.
1: And then if you're really lucky, you can pass that down through your K-1 and uh, take that off your salary too, off your W-2 earnings. So that's even you can so.
0: That's right. And you can certainly carry it forward if you can't do that. Right. Exactly. All right. So what final tips do you have for someone, high net worth individual who's looking to invest money, is paying too much taxes, and they're not sure what to do. What advice do you have to that person? What would you say to that person?
1: I, I just say get off the sidelines. You've probably thought about it for a long time, as we all have, and saying, Wow, you know, you know, April of every year always is really painful writing that check if you're if you're like me. So that was a really big motivator and taking a small percentage, even just dipping your toe in the water. It doesn't have to be much, but, you know, there's crowdfunding sites. There's all sorts of ways now that you can become a part of something. Certainly, you know, people like yourself or like us, we are more than happy to educate people, even people that don't invest with us. It's just something we do. So taking a small portion and it doesn't have to be large and just getting in there will force you to, to get your skin in the game. I mean, it's amazing what a little money will do and you'll you'll look up and think, wow, okay, this, this does work. Yeah. So
0: it's it's not a it's not a huge commitment either. That's right. What are you most excited about right now, Jim?
1: What's what's your most excited? We just landed. <laughs> a about. Yeah, I
2: mean, growth of our firm, working on the building blocks, growing our business excites us a lot. Uh, we're building a brand here. I think that we've had you know really nice growth since Tom and I started the firm with very very happy investors. The database, you know, and, and relationships continue to grow. Tom and I know virtually every one of our investors. We have multiple investor meetings annually. We're getting ready, actually Thursday, to have one in Austin, Texas with our investors there where we update them on uh, properties, performance, and then kind of our business planning goals for 2018. So I think what excites me is about building the business. Awesome. Tom? Yeah, I'd say the
1: same thing. I think it's relationships for me. I mean, Tim is always kind of, and he always makes fun of me for being the, the front
2: man. And I'm not going to say what he normally does, but... Uh, <laughs> He's Dorothy. He's got, his, he's got his red ruby slippers on down there somewhere. <laughs> and, and Tim's
1: always behind the curtain, you know, pulling the, pulling the levers and such. And that's, it's the dynamic of the two. I enjoy being out there doing, you know, I, I do a fair amount of speaking and lecturing and just different things and getting people excited about it because it's something that, that to me is really close to my heart. And, and it gave me the ability to step away from a point where I was working just insane hours and making less money than I am now. And I am a thousand times happier. I'm 40 pounds heavier. <laughs> and so, first time in years, and it's only because I read this, is you read these success stories, you know, Robert Kiyosaki, and you think, God, how do I get to that point? You just have to one step in front of the other. It just takes one investment, going on to the next investment. 10 years later, you look back and you think, Holy crap. I can't imagine. I thought that $4,000 investment was just going to blow my mind when I did it years ago. And now we're throwing down, for earnest money and hard money, we're we're throwing down hundreds of thousands of dollars at a time. But it's because there's a method to the madness and we trust the
0: model. That's right. So how can people get a hold of Tom and Tim Black? Tim, go for it. Yeah, really simple. So Tim at Nepali Cap,
2: so dot com, or Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S at NapaliCap.com. Or you can go to our website, NapaliCap, click on, contact us. We're, we're always available. You know, that comes right to us, those emails. We respond, you know, really very, very quickly. Yeah, I love awesome. talking to people, learning about what their interests lie, where their interests lie in real estate and what their goals are. I'd say that's why well, I've got a blog that I, I haven't blogged anything in about a couple weeks,
1: but the passive income And then of course I always have the book is on Amazon. If you Google Thomas black MD or the passive income physician, it will open up there too. So, but if anybody reaches out, we're always happy to shuttle off a copy here or there. So that's yeah. right.
0: Yeah, no, it sounds good. Now I appreciate you guys coming on the show and sharing your experience and, and helping us become better passive investors. Perfect. Thank okay. you, Rob. Thank you very much. Have a good afternoon. We appreciate all right, I hope you found that useful if you're a passive investor considering investments. And if you're not and you're the syndicator, that to know that what investors are looking for. So if you haven't a chance already, hop on over to Amazon and purchase Tom's book. It's called The Passive Income Physician Short Read, but really, really useful, especially around the tax benefits and multifamily. And a lot of things in more detail that we talked about today. So definitely check that out as well. If you're interested in investing with me, go to themichaelblanccom forward slash invest. That's T-H-E, h forward slash invest. And find out more about working with us as well. And if you love the show, I'd love to hear from you on iTunes. Greg Hubner left a review just a little while ago last week. And I really appreciate that. Thanks so much, Greg. I appreciate leaving the review. And if you loved it, just hop on over and leave me a review as well. And I'll give you a shout out. All right, guys, really appreciate it. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block.
1: For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.